someone shared with me um, the other day that um, they, they were reading a book and there was a quote there from a, um, from a, some Asian meditation master, I don't know which, uh, which lineage, which tradition. And this quote said something like um, that if you're practicing for self, selfish reasons, if you're practicing for selfish reasons, then you should probably stop meditating. That was, that was the quote, you know, as I remember it. It's probably not very accurate. And um, you know that the other part of that quote was, you know, that you, you should only be practicing if your motivation, your intention is to practice um, for the welfare of all beings. That, that should be the motivation. And just to, just to notice what that brings up, you know, it can bring up some sense of unease in us, you know, of like, you know, wow, practicing for the welfare of all beings, that's kind of like, you know, whereas, you know, what, why am I practicing, you know? I mean, practicing to, to be more happy, to be more open, to... Um, improve my relationships, both to my life, to other people, um, to, to help uh, reduce and dissolve unwholesome habits and patterns that I have. You know, that's often the, the reasons that, that bring us to practice. And um, there's nothing to be ashamed of there at all. So I, I kind of want to look at it a little bit more. I found this quite interesting. So if I'm practicing in order to be uh, more happy, more open, to improve my relationships, and I become more happy, more open, and I can relate better to others, how does that affect my interactions with others? How does that affect my actions in the world? It's not a very difficult question. (laughs) Yeah. How does it affect my my choices, my actions? Um, And how does then that affect others that I come into contact with? You know, so we see these circles, you know, the practice. You know, we've thrown the stone into the, the lake and then there's the ripples around it. So hopefully you can see, I can already tell that I'm not going to be super articulate this evening. It's already apparent to me so far, but hopefully you can see from that that like these ripples are very significant. When we look deeply, we can see that it's impossible, actually. It's actually impossible to develop our own well-being, to cultivate our own happiness without that having an effect beyond ourselves. Yeah. <coughs> actually impossible. You can try <laughs> and see. You know, can we... You know, can we keep the happiness and the well-being just here? Is it possible to do that? You know, 
We can try really hard. I don't think we'll succeed. Let me know. Let me know if you succeed in that. And so, yeah, it's impossible to keep that separate. Impossible to keep that separate. And the deeper we go into practice, the more we practice, the deeper our practice goes, the more our interconnection, the more the mutuality of our being in the world, the reciprocity, can't say that word, reciprocity, yes, something like that, are seen. And the further we understand that um, my happiness includes your happiness, and my happiness is made up of your happiness, yeah, or the happiness of others. So a few years ago, I watched a, a documentary film that, um, that really shone a light on this kind of same truth that I'm trying to, to, to kind of articulate here um, from a, a somewhat unexpected um, angle. And it was um, a series of interviews. This documentary was a series of interviews with um, former heads of the Israeli um, internal security, you know, which is kind of like the equivalent of the FBI, possibly meaner. I don't know. I don't know much about the FBI, so I can't quite say. So it was a series of interviews with, with um, former heads of this organization. And so these were, you know, you could tell, you know, these guys, um, you know, some of them were already quite old, others, you know, recently retired, so, you know, 50s, 60s. Um, But you could tell, you know, they were fighters. (laughs) You know, they were um, kind of hard men, yeah? And you could could say that um, quite easily that they probably had a different... Um, set of kind of life experiences and life views than that than most Dharma practitioners would have. Yeah? Say that fairly easily, you know, probably even without watching the film, but also with watching it. And they were asked, you know, questions, and and they were responding to the questions. It was you know very well made film and very well edited also. And the questions were about, you know, situations that they'd been in, um, decisions that they had to make, um, and all involved with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, clearly, you know, that's the... The really interesting thing, I mean, there were many interesting things about this film, but the really, really interesting thing was that um, all six men that were interviewed, all six of them, um, all the six interviews ended, concluded in a similar way. They all concluded in a similar way. And they were all independent, yeah? They were not relate, they didn't know, one interview wasn't connected to the other. They were each interviewed completely separately. And so each of the interviewees at, at the end of their interview um, shared with a, with a, with a filmmaker um, that they had reached a conclusion, that they had realized that um, an attitude 
of violence, even when it comes under the umbrella of self-defense. Yeah? An attitude of violence, even when it's framed as self-defense, cannot resolve a conflict. You know, they'd each, they each came to that conclusion. They'd each come to that conclusion. They were sharing it. An attitude of violence, that so-called security, cannot address the problem of the conflict. They all said, in order to, to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we need to talk to the Palestinians. That's what's going to bring a solution. That's the only way. An attitude of violence is just a stopgap. It doesn't address the roots. And it cannot, it cannot solve, it cannot bring a solution. It's really powerful. So we can say in another way, other words, that, you know, very simply they realize that in order for Israelis to live in safety and well-being, Palestinians had to live in safety and well-being. Yeah. And say, you know, that it's not th- these aren't their words, these are my words. But you can say that's what they realized. We have to have a dialogue. We have to talk to each other. We have to reach a compromise. So an effective solution addresses the needs of everyone. So again, that understanding... Yeah, that understanding that I cannot hold on to happiness separately and equally my problems are not going to be solved. I cannot live happily if someone else is paying the price yeah, for that equally. It's another angle on the same thing. There's a beautiful um, quote from the, I think, 8th century Buddhist Indian sage Shantideva. Uh, I haven't got the exact quote, so it's a paraphrase, but he says, um, you know, just like the hand is one of many limbs of the body, yeah, just like the hand is one of many limbs of the body, so too I realize that this body is one (laughs) of many that make up life. You know, it's a total paraphrasing of mine. He says it much more beautifully. But that understanding, you know, of the non-separateness, of the interdependence and interconnection. So in Dharma practice, in our practice here, this view or this understanding is, is really inbuilt. It's very core to our practice, this understanding. And we've been speaking about it in different ways over the days here. Kind of part of the territory, and it, it gets increasingly, increasingly refined as we, as we practice, as our practice deepens. And we can also kind of take it up and kind of actively, intentionally bring it to the center of our practice, front and center, yeah, to really, um, in the suttas, the, the Buddha, when he, gives, um, when he gives meditation instructions, he often says something like um, placing mindfulness in front 
So we could say placing this attitude in front, this attitude of, um, of understanding the non-separation on a very, very deep level and that kind of really nourishing that um, wish to be of use, to be of service, to bring happiness uh, to all, you know, which is not different then, but it's kind of a, a, a different way of saying it than just, you know, I'm practicing for my happiness. So we can actually kind of work with this as a, an, something intentional, um, as a tool or as a way of looking, which is kind of the, the phrase we've been using here a lot for our practices. So one way we can do that is, as we've spoken before, we can take moments of insight that we have into this and apply them. You know, remember them, apply them. And through that, nourish this attitude, this way of looking further. The word that's um, used to to describe this attitude, um, to describe this um, intention is bodhicitta. And chitta is um, the heart-mind. We've been using that phrase a lot. Bodhi, same root as Buddha, awake. So it's, it's, it's a state of an awake heart-mind or an awakening heart-mind. So why awake? You know, why awake? Because of this prioritizing of the seeing of the interconnectedness. Because um, of the prioritizing of the deepest forms of wisdom and compassion. Yeah, the deepest forms of wisdom and compassion. And I was reflecting when I was making notes today, um, you know, that, that being here, we're really um, spending time in a place that's deeply rooted in this bodhicitta intention. Yeah, it's really, this is what it's kind of, if you tune in, you can feel it in the earth, in the buildings, in the way people interact with each other. It's really a place that was built on that intention and that intention to address suffering, and that intention to include everybody, and that intention to really look at the biggest picture possible. So I was also um, remembering a memory, something I I tend to to share in talks in Somnath, I think, quite a lot. is deeply connected to this place and, and, and our relationship to it. So Baba Amte, the founder of all these projects, um, he, he loved Somnath. This was his favorite place of all the, the projects, but he, he didn't spend a lot of, he couldn't spend too much time here. And by the time we met him, he was, he was in his 90s and he was um, very limited physically in, in what he could do. Um, so he, he, he stayed in Anandawan. Um, but every time we would come back from Somnat, um, we would go to see him <laughs> straight away and he would really kind of want to hear um, what it was like for us to be here. There was this real sense of um, the, the enjoyment through, through us. 
And so I don't remember when this was, but one year when we, we came back after the silent retreat here to Orlando and to do the work retreat and we, do the work retreat and we came to see him with, with the whole group. And um, he was lying in bed as as he as he was <laughs> by that stage. And um, he uh, he said he spoke to the whole group and he said, um, you know, I've I've really led a life of, of action, you know, led a, a life of action. I've been very active in my life. Um, so I don't really know much about meditation. I don't really know much about meditation. But when I was young, someone took me to see uh, a tree. And that tree had roots that were so strong that they went into the ground and they created a cave. Yeah, so these tree roots were so strong, so powerful, they created a cave. And that cave, he said, was so special that the wild creatures would come to rest in that cave. And he said, I don't know much about meditation, but I think that's what it's like. It's like that cave. So he did know quite a lot about meditation, actually, if you feel into that. So feeling into our practice as this deep-rootedness in life that creates a place so special and so safe that the wild creatures can come and rest. This is, for me, probably the most beautiful um, image I've ever heard of, of bodhicitta, of this quality, of this aspiration that we have in practice. And it can be really interesting to, to kind of look, what happens to my practice when I view it in, that, in this way? What happens to my practice when I view it in this way? As the creation or the nourishment of space, a space of um, safety and of well-being for all. A space of safety and well-being for all. And then what happens to my life <laughs> as well? You know, this is really important because, you know, it may say on the schedule that the retreat ends tomorrow at lunch, <laughs> if you've looked. But our practice doesn't end tomorrow at lunch, you know. It's not, that's not a cutoff point. We have the very real possibility to, to continue, you know, whether um, we're carrying, to the work, carrying on to the work retreat or we're moving on to something else. We have the very real possibility to continue, to continue exploring, cultivating, nourishing, ways of looking that reduce suffering and increase freedom and happiness for, for all beings, for everyone.
So we have that possibility. And how do we apply it? How do we apply ourselves to this aspiration, to this process? So one way is um, to include kind of intuitive, effortless, immediate responses and actions that we have. You know, and there's actually a lot of them. We just tend to not to not notice or to not classify them as acts of, of goodwill or of compassion. So, you know, if we are walking along and, and someone next to, to us stumbles, yeah, our natural response, yeah, is to reach out and to stop them. You know, it's as simple as that. It's a natural response. I think... Even, um, I think they've, they've seen that even very young babies, when another baby is crying near them, they respond. You know, they, there's nothing they can do. <laughs> really young babies, there's nothing they can do. But they respond to the crying and want to alleviate the distress. <coughs> so to really... The, include, pay attention, see this natural empathy that, it arise, that arises. And often when we kind of pay attention to it, we see that there's the natural empathy and then there's some other um, block that comes to block it. So often we don't act on that impulse, but it's there. So to really notice that, highlight that, and see if we can let ourselves act more you know, beyond the blocks of social convention or embarrassment or whatever it is that's stopping us. Another way of kind of bringing this aspiration more to the front, to the center, is um, noticing what I, would, what I was calling when I made this list, um, kind of everyday, kind of everyday intentionality happens to us a lot or you know when I said this to Nathan he, he said us consideration and I'll say what it is and then you'll see that you know he he he, uh, he was right um, but uh, yeah this everyday intentionality so everyday situations that come up you know maybe we're here in the hall and <clears throat> there's a lot of restlessness coming up in the body or the mind, there's just a lot of restlessness and we really want to just get up and leave. You know, we really want to get up and leave. But what keeps us here and present is the fact that we don't want to disturb the others. Yeah, so it's an everyday situation, really everyday situation. But we kind of prioritize the well-being of others over our own kind of... Um, Impulse. Is that clear, this example? Yeah. And, and this happens many, many times. You know, it can happen many, in many, many ways. Many ways. And when we look at it, you know, when we look at it more and more in detail, um, we can see that there can be different layers of um, identity and voices in there. 
you know, like sometimes we can see the self actually building up around the idea of being good. Yeah, or or being considerate, or whatever it is. Um, and part of the practice, part of the bodhicitta practice, is to actually kind of have a really wide view and see all these different flavors that come in without, um, without them cancelling each other out. So the fact that there is some contraction doesn't mean that that cancels out the consideration, that cancels out that ability to prioritize the well-being of others. And if there's a contraction, well, we know how to work with contraction, right? (laughs) We see it as dukkha. We relax the body, you know? It's no big deal. It happens in in different forms. So... The third um, kind of way of bringing this to the front is to really, something I said in the beginning, to really make this an intentional attitude or an intentional way of looking. And when I was reflecting on this, the image was, it's as if we're kind of realigning or we're shifting the weight of where our center is in a way, you know, from more self-concern for more self-concern, to a kind of wider perspective, a wider level of care and concern. And this can be very gradual, you know, and there can be moments where it comes very naturally or it's easier to make that step, and then there's moments that, that, that it's less. And, and that's all fine. It's gradual. And it's also important to remember that you know, bodhicitta, this is where the practice is leading us, as I kind of said in the beginning. It's a natural unfolding of the practice. It's happening anyway. But also, it's very much a, a practice that we can apply to the here and now, that we can apply to what is present here and now. And we really don't need to wait till we're perfected in order to... Um, to act, yeah, or to apply this. We really don't need to wait till we're perfected or enlightened or awakened or whatever the language is that we like to use around this. So it's a common, um, what I feel is a common misperception in spiritual circles. That until I know everything, then I don't engage. And yet we are engaged, you know. <laughs> This is the truth of it. We are engaged. Engagement is not a choice. We are engaged through having a body, through having a mind. And so then what, where do I, where do I center myself? What is my point of balance? What do I place in front So remembering, you know, this isn't a dogma, it's not an ideal, it's an aspiration and it's a way of looking that we can apply, that we can work with. And it's really um, juicy, really um, nourishing to actually work with what is unfolding in our experience right here and now 
from that perspective, from that context. So we work with what is unfolding here and now in our experience as a fuel for deeper understanding. We, we know that we don't understand everything, but we use what is arising now to deepen our understanding of the human situation, of the human situation. And we use it as a doorway to deepen connection, to deepen connection and to lessen suffering, reduce suffering. So for example, you know, we might be in a situation where we feel um, contracted, sad, confused, fearful, anxious, you know, whatever (laughs) our pattern of negativity is. And then we can open, yeah, we can open to the impersonality of dukkha. We can open to the impersonality of impermanence. We can open to the impersonality of not me, not mine. You know, this is happening. But this that is happening is a human experience. And it's known by others, humans and non-humans, depending what the experience is. So it's not exclusively mine, yeah? It's not exclusively mine. And that can really, really change the perception. It's not exclusively mine, it's not me. It's a human experience that is coming into being in this body and in this mind. And this understanding, this opening, can really resource us in then acting in ways that are beneficial for others as well. So really useful way of looking when we meet what we call our edge. Yeah, when we meet the places um, where we feel restricted or um, overwhelmed. So I was, I was remembering um, a kind of um, pivotal moment in my work retreat, an Andaman work retreat experiences. Um, this was one of the, of the first years I was working with the old women in the old people's home in Anandawan. And um, I was there one day and one of the old ladies who was quite frail and um, couldn't walk anymore, so she was usually, I think, just shuffling on the ground, um, had been shuffling to the toilet and she hadn't quite made it. Um, and so there she was sitting in the corridor um, and next to her was um, her poo, her shit. And I, I remember that was a real edge for me. You know, I, kind of, I was kind of frozen. You know, there she was and um, the other women were kind of telling her off for doing it. Um, no one was helping her. There wasn't much that she could do. And, of course, mentally I knew what I needed to do, you know, go 
get rid of, of that shit, um, clean her up, wash her clothes, get her back into bed. You know, it's quite obvious um, what needs to happen. But from that mental knowing to the actual doing, there was a big gap. It's really at an edge. And I, I really, when I remember this, I can still really feel that sense of being frozen, you know, just frozen and looking at her and she was looking at me. And there was her distress and there was my distress. And the situation and the practice didn't allow me to flee. You know, I couldn't just, <clears throat> you know, turn my back and walk away. That, that wasn't an option. So I was really, there was this real sense of, of being frozen. <clears throat> and this real sense of, I can't do this, you know, I can't do this, I can't do this. So staying, you know, in that frozenness, slowly the wisdom came in and just staying steady with that sense of edge, just staying steady with that sense of edge, staying present, looking her in the eye, you know, and looking myself in the eye, you know, my distress, her distress. And then someone else from the group came who was a, she was a a practicing nurse and so um, for her, this wasn't the same kind of edge as it was for me. Um, so she just put some gloves on <coughs> and got on with it. And once she did, I could just get some gloves on and help her. You know, kind of like something shifted in that movement. And, and I, was, I was helping her. I was definitely the assistant but it's it's such a it was such a core experience in that because you know this is where bodhicitta is 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 so powerful it doesn't say oh look at you you know frozen and unable to do the right thing you piece of shit or whatever it is that we call ourselves when we're in that frame of mind it just says stay steady feel the painfulness of the situation stay steady and something will shift. Yeah, something will shift when the conditions are right, are, are right for it. Something will shift. So the timeline can be different, you know. It's not always that someone will turn up. It may <coughs> take much longer, but that staying steady and open. You know, accepting that, yeah, I have limits, and these limits are painful. That is part of what allows the heart to grow and the capacity to grow. So this is a really, it's such a genuine and precious practice. It really takes, you know, willingness and commitment and perseverance and patience, a lot of patience, as well as acceptance of where we're at and kindness. And again, not a dogma, not an ideal, not something to kind of stretch a painful gap between, but working with where we are, staying steady at those edges, staying open, compassionate, with the distress, and knowing that, you know, this is for the long run, <laughs> yeah. So things will shift, things will move, something will happen.
And really remembering that, you know, we don't need to do it all. You know, we don't need to fix everything. We don't need to be super heroes and heroines that can, you know, attend to all distress and all suffering in the world, whatever it is, all the time. We just need to play our part, to take our part, to do our bit in this movement of wisdom and compassion, which is in the world all the time, you know, all the time there is this movement of wisdom and compassion that we can be a part of. Another kind of ongoing exploration we have um, on the work retreats with those of us who work with um, the old ladies is um, that the two main things that we do is we massage and we, and we do hair, you know, we brush hair and plait it. And it's really interesting to see the different edges that different people have. <laughs> so some people feel um, much more at ease with doing hair and some people feel much more at ease with touching skin. And just seeing how all of that comes together. You know, some like hair and some don't. And it's fine. And some like nail polish. You know, and it's fine. There's kind of space for, there's space for all of it. So we just need to play our part. Don't need to, to be able to do it all. So another kind of thing about this, this power of putting bodhicitta in the front. It's a friend of mine who um, over the last couple of years has, has kind of suffered um, some periods of depression. And she said to me uh, recently, she said that she realized that when the depression starts to to spiral, um, the most effective thing to do to get out of that spiral is to do an act of generosity, is to do something for someone else. And she said, if I can, if I can catch it at that point and get involved in an act of generosity, then that cuts that cycle. That's really deep, deep insight for her. You know, it doesn't need to be true for everyone, but for her. So this kind of discovery that, again, coming back to my original point, which is what I'm hammering away through this whole talk, you know, that seeing in that very clear way for her, seeing very, very clearly that acting for the well-being of others is in her own interest. It's for the well-being of herself. And in her case, the most effective way that she had found so far. And of course, the Dalai Lama has a wonderful one-liner about this that probably many of you are familiar with. And he says, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. You know, that leads to the same place, our own happiness, our own well-being, 
and the well-being and happiness of others. So using this way of looking, of really seeing when there's a more narrow self-concerned view and how we can shift that to a wider, wider view that takes in the well-being of more than just myself. As we do this, that this way of looking roots, it actually really feels again like those roots of those trees, of that tree into our being and becomes like a, a central pillar of our practice and our lives. And as it does that, it becomes more immediate and more effortless, as well as deeper and more refined. It becomes like a guiding light for us on our path. And one of the most beautiful things about it is the incredible, powerful, and yet soft quality of strength that bodhicitta has. It's incredibly powerful and yet soft strength. Like wild flowers that grow out of concrete. You know, I'm sure you've all seen that in India and elsewhere. You know, wild flowers, these tiny little plants coming from tiny little seeds that manage to grow out of this really hard surface. So they have this soft strength. And it's available to us in any situation. Yeah? It's available to us in any situation. The more we practice, the more we bring it to the front, the more it's rooted in us, the more we're rooted in it. It becomes available in any situation. So I'll end with just one more illustration of this. And this, um, this was uh, something that we um, were present at in, uh, in November when we were in Israel and Palestine. And uh, we went to a, a demonstration which um, was just walking along the separation barrier that Israel has built. And this was just um, outside the the large Palestinian city of Bethlehem. So, um, you know, there's the city and the city is encircled by this huge tall wall. And the demonstration is walking along this wall. And the separation uh, barrier, you know, it's a really tall thing, tall concrete thing, is one of the strongest manifestations that I know of separation. It's called the separation barrier. It's appropriately named. (coughs) Strong manifestation of... (coughs) separation of animosity, of enmity that exists in the world. And so there it is, and we're in the shade of this barrier. 
we're in its shadow. And the demonstration is calling for um, the end of hatred and enmity. So it's a group of Palestinians and Israelis walking together, demonstrating together, and internationals, but mostly Palestinians and Israelis. And it was um, just such a powerful manifestation of even in the shade of this enormous structure that is the image of enmity and aversion and separation, there is something more powerful that can be present. Yeah? Even when it doesn't physically affect that wall, but it's, it's so much more powerful, so much stronger. And, you know, we can say that something is that part of the human spirit which um, doesn't give up on friendship, you know, doesn't give up on humanity, doesn't give up on kindness, doesn't give up on, on bodhicitta, doesn't give up on this really deep knowing that we can live in friendship, that we can live in care. And the most touching moments for me were, as we were there, I think it was a couple of hours, was, um, so this, this group, they're called Combatants for Peace, they work together for years. And so seeing them meeting each other, you know, there's this, I don't know, 200 people there, and then you see an Israeli and a Palestinian meeting, and there's, you know, such deep friendship, and there's so much love, and you just see that connection. And that's the power, you know, that's the strength, and that is so much stronger than anything that enmity or aversion or hatred can throw at us. It's so much stronger, that human heart, that human spirit, that human capacity to care and to keep going, you know, keep going. You know, it's also what we're doing in practice, yeah? We just keep going. We keep coming back to these aspirations. We don't give up because it's taking time, you know? We don't give up because we're not able to change ourselves or the world as fast as we would like or as fast as we feel is needed, you know, we don't give up. We come back again and again to that, whatever that is, that moment of meeting our, you know, in in the Tibetan tradition they would say our true nature, which we can also meet in each other. Our deep heart, our deep aspiration. And we keep coming back to that, to to resource us, to give us strength, to to change the world, even when it seems like it's not changing. Because it is. So let's have a, a quiet moment to bring this to a close.
May we continue to prioritize bringing bodhicitta to the front and the center of our lives and our practice. May we continue to practice ways of looking that reduce suffering and its causes for ourselves and others. And may our practice together be for the welfare and the benefit of all beings everywhere, including ourselves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.